0: Welcome to Supervision Time. My name is Gideon Litherland. Supervision Time is a counseling supervision podcast on the PodTalk Network. Brought to you by executive producer, Dr. Marty Gensius, and your hosts, Gina Martin, and myself, Dr. Gideon Litherland.
1: Hi, everyone. So I'm Gina Martin. I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa and also affiliate faculty at Northwestern University. And today we have two very special guests with us. We have Dr. Pei Tao Zhu, assistant professor in the Department of Counseling and Higher Education at Northern Illinois University. And we have Dr. Melissa Luke, Provost Faculty Fellow at Syracuse University, Associate Dean for Research in the School of Education, and Dean's Professor in the Department of Counseling and Human Services. So today, we're going to be talking a little bit about cultural humility and one of their recent publications on that. And before we get started, I'll turn it over to them if they want to say a brief hello. Good afternoon. We're delighted to be here.
2: Hello everyone. Very good to be talking uh, on this topic.
0: On behalf of Gina and myself, um, we're so excited that you're here. Um, this recent publication of yours, um, I know the two of you were on this publication uh, in building a grounded theory of cultural humility, and yet another author on there too. You know, as as, as we move uh, into the conversation, um, I kind of want to start for the listening audience as well as for supervisors. Um What's your sense of what cultural humility is?
2: Well, it's funny that you're asking that question, because I feel like that's pro- probably the, the driving force for us to do this study, is to get a better understanding of what that is. Um, and, and if if it's helpful, I think I would just want to provide some context of why we want to do this in the first place. I was an international student, now I'm an international sort of faculty. So my exposure to sort of the, all of this multicultural uh, competency, multicultural counseling sort of started when I was a graduate student. Um, And for me, like being exposed to the terminologies and the conceptual models and framework were very helpful, but at the same time, I think I observed and experienced uh, perhaps a little discrepancy in in terms of I feel like there's something missing that when it comes to my own culture experience uh, in the U.S. and and there's one incident to me that was particularly in the salient. I was in this professional. Uh, a conference was talking with someone, a colleague that I just really like recently um, came to know. And then we're like exchanging uh, uh, information and talking about, you know, what our lives has been. And then she's like, oh, like, are you from here? Uh, I think that was a conference in San Francisco. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not from here. I I actually am studying doctoral program in um, Syracuse. And she's like, oh, are you from New York? And I said, no, I'm from China. And interestingly enough that conversation ended right there there was no follow-up question there was no, nothing else that was said uh, along those lines so so i it got me thinking you know you know like like i think retrospectively i could understand um first of all i think i was curious uh, and i was curious about hmm like how come that was sort of the 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 end of of that conversation? If if it were up to me, I would probably be asking questions like, "Oh, like how is it like to be studying here in the U.S.?" Right? Like, how is it like for you in terms of transition? How is it like for you to grow up in a, in a different country and come here um, in in a completely different social and educational system? And retrospectively, the I, my, my hypothesis is that there's probably some questions that were kind of deemed maybe inappropriate and may maybe insensitive that might indicate somehow a lack of cultural competence by pursuing those uh, line of questions. So for me, like, while I understand that is, you know, it is consistent with, with some of the ed- education and training that I rec- received. Uh, but on the other hand, I wonder, what has prevented us in that particular moment to get to, re- to really get to know each other and really get to understand each other's experience um, and what might be prohibiting uh, some of that intercultural understanding? And, and that was perhaps one of those moments where I was very acutely aware that something was missing in that moment. And I think I came across the cultural humility framework and literature, um, and that felt Like a nice additive, um, and a a really refreshing, I guess, perspective when it comes to intercultural and multicultural communication. Um, So that was sort of an impetus of of for for me personally uh, to trying to uh, pursue. Maybe maybe I want to know a little bit more about what cultural humility is and how that looked like um, in counseling and counselor education.
3: I know you've shared that story with me before, Patel. Maybe when it was closer to when it happened, but. As you were you were talking, I was thinking about how my relationship with you or yours with me or our relationship actually is is the impetus for me um, in in um, this work. And as a doctoral student myself, I I became intrigued with the uh, construct of cultural empathy. Right. It was new ish. when I was a doctoral student and and understanding sort of the 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 ways in which, you know, the individual and then larger systems uh, up to cultural system, how empathy can work across that from a, a humanistic frame. And and when you became intrigued, as you as you said, with cultural humility, um, um, for me, in my own socialization and my own intersecting identities, humility was not a named construct for me in my in my growth. Um, I think it existed, but but it wasn't it wasn't as salient as um, it was for you. And and I think about that your first year of doctoral study and how we had lunch once a week together in my office um um over that that semester and how um how my sense of of empathy in relationship actually expanded to some of some of what we what we later began to study in terms of of humility
0: i think i think what's particularly meaningful about what you're offering up, Peta, what you're offering up, Melissa, is this idea that we can kind of know cultural humility by, by noticing when it's not there. But then in relationship, we can, we can build it and we can foster it. And I think that similar dynamic that you're offering up here was really present in some of the writing in this article around cultural humility as being a relational engagement, interpersonal engagement. Um, so I, w- I want to read something back to you, if you'll humor me. Um, and kind of want to like hear your reflections on it after, after I read it. Um, so, I, and I don't know how y'all wrote this, but I just thought it was so, so meaningful and like gave us, um, gave us as supervisors and clinicians who gave us a, you know, um, some clear concepts to work with, right? Uh, what you wrote was intrapersonally, culturally humble persons acknowledge their own limitation and imperfection, present as modest and display authenticity. interpersonally culturally humble persons tend to enact egalitarianism in relationships and approach confrontation with a non-threatening stance. So I want to, I want to invite your reflections here around, um, either how this lanes with you now, or what other, other reflections do you have on what, what exactly is cultural humility?
2: Well, that sounds brilliant. I wonder who wrote that. Um, <laughs> Um, for me, I, you know, it's so hard to define cultural humility. And I think you're right. Like it's, we notice when it's not there, Um, but it's something that is a little bit intangible, a little bit implicit and subtle. So it's not things that you can, like, even if, we would. to show, I don't know, Melissa, how you feel about this, but even now, like I've done a couple of studies on cultural humility. If you ask me to identify one specific moment in a counseling video, for example, I'm not hundred percent confident that I can point out, point to you and, and tell you, these are the reason why this is a cultural humility moment. Um, so I think it's, it's so a lot of this is contextual. It, it requires a, a sort of a deeper level of analysis, but uh, in terms of my sort of reflection upon um, what you um, identified in the, in the article, I think a, a lot of my impression is that sometimes when we talk about culture, cultural competence, multicultural competencies, all of these things, we talk about things that we shouldn't be doing, uh, like words that are not appropriate, you know, uh, perhaps question that you shouldn't be asking, assumption that you shouldn't be making. So, So in a sense, I think that is... Well, that that does you know uh, uh, convey maybe competency and and sensitivity, but at the same time, I'm left with then what what should I do in those communicate? Should I how how what what might be a way for me to actually authentically genuinely display my curiosity and and, and desire to understand someone, right? And I think I think I. For me that was the biggest missing piece and what really resonated with me in terms of cultural humility is that um, interpersonally I think it offers and it's okay to be curious um, as long as it's respectful as long as it's genuine as long for example you know a culturally humble person can also confront other people, right? Being humble doesn't mean that you have to repress your ideas or positionality, but it means that you confront with a purpose to connect rather than confront with a purpose to disconnect. And that to me is huge. And that sort of um, relates to what we're trying to say in the uh, one of the Critical piece that we wanted to convey in the article about cultural humility being a relational construct, be, because ultimately it is about um, the relationship that you have with another in individual, individuals who have diverse cultural uh, background. Um, and the other piece you mentioned, intra-personal as well. For me, one of the major components of cultural humility is to recognize that we all make mistakes, um, and that is okay. in um, and, and If we try hundred percent, like this is actually one of our participants that if you try with uh, uh, all of all fibers of your being, trying not to make a mistake, then you're really not going to make a connection with people either, because it's a it's going to be a very distant and I don't know calculated uh, connection. um, But because human beings make mistake, and it's okay to acknowledge. Um, that we all have limitations. As long as, again, going back to the idea of being respectful and being able to acknowledge
0: and repair, I really resonate with what you're what you're offering up here. Because as I as I read this piece, as I read your work, the idea of grace really came out. That like, if we're invested in confronting to connect, I, I really love that. Like, if we're invested in confronting to connect, to understand and engage in cultural humility, then we need to extend grace in relationship. Um, and also uh, you know, normalize that mistakes happen. So how do how do we get to the repair side if a rupture occurs? You know
3: Gideon, I think I think we have a big literature that actually probably points us into a direction to answer those questions that need to be asked in, uh, empirically too. but but it makes me think about attunement, right? Um, we know, you know, decades of literature about attunement and and that actually misattunement not only happens just like tao said mistakes happen in in um in in the context that he was talking, but actually people develop through misattunement, and in fact, if we were fundamentally always attuned, right, Winnicott, you know, talking, um, in in fact, that would impede um, perhaps perhaps optimal development, and so I think about it in a really similar kind of way. If you take what Tao said, you know, it it becomes sanitized. I think you said calculated, right? Like like there's an inauthenticity. There, um, but potentially even even an absence of growth promoting opportunities for for both parties. And um, if if I can just go back to the quote that you read, um, I was thinking about you know there's a, a, a this is all. Um, predicated on this understanding that we're all cultural beings right and then there's the intra and interpersonal aspect related to this in the soupiness of 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 our cultural beings and we can be many of the things that you read intrapersonally or interpersonally in absence of cultural being and then really what what the complexity that is added is, you know, Patel, you were talking about a curiosity or sort of this stance, and you know, leaning in. And it's not just about the person; it's the person and the the way in which they experience themselves as as a cultural being.
1: Beautiful. I think that there's so much uh, truth to this, and I I feel so much resonance within myself on this. Uh, what you when you said that, Tao, about wanting to confront uh, with the intention of connecting rather than confront with the intention of disconnecting or putting up that barrier. That is uh, that's so central to my core beliefs about supervision and about teaching and about counseling, right? There's so many parallel relationships with all of those things, but it's it's so important because you know, like you've both mentioned, right, as cultural beings, that's part of how we connect and part of how we attach to people. And I think attachment also plays a huge role within the supervisory relationship. And that's what leads me to my next question for you both. Why is cultural humility an important factor for supervisors to attend to and to focus on within that supervisory relationship? Well, I think that you
3: started answering that, Gina, because it's there. Um, that's that. That's my most succinct and parsimonious answer. But, but, but cultural humility is relevant across the supervisory triad, right? Um, the client is a cultural being. The counselor is a cultural being, and 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 there is evidence of or lack thereof of cultural humility across across them within their relationship. Then the the. Um, Counselor with the supervisor, same, you know, in that parallel process. And then, of course, as a supervisor, um, my ability to um, uh, attend and enact cultural humility in relationship to the client who I'm not necessarily at least most of the time in direct contact, unless I'm doing live supervision, um, it's all, all relevant and it's all happening all at once. So there's a lot of complexity to it.
2: Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with what you said, Melissa. And I think like, I, I, and I didn't, haven't thought about this until this very moment in terms of the synchrony between, uh, the, the, that cycle, uh, You know the the diagram that we put forth in the manuscript, and in terms of the attachment, the attunement, and misattunement, and being able to keep uh, using that sort of cyclical process to develop a stronger and stronger relationship, and that was I think that's a beautiful way to to think about cultural humility. One of the important thing our participants said was, um, and this is across perhaps for all all 14 uh, participants who have described their experience with cultural humility is that um, this is a quality that becomes so salient and particularly salient when there's some kind of tension, um, be it disagreement, um, value conflicts or misunderstanding, misintunement. In, in, in that particular moment, it's all, it's like, well, that, you know, that quality might always be there, but it's most important and it's most telling when when there's a moment that involves some kind of conflict so 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 to me and that tends to happen a lot in in supervision maybe not uh, exclusive to supervision but because supervision it tends to be a non egalitarian um uh, relationship, right? It's it's evaluative and, and there is a power differential, not that it's bad, but but there is this sort of power imbalance between the supervisee and supervisor. And, and there is times I would imagine for um the for the diet to be experiencing, you know, the supervisee might feel misunderstood or not being fully seen and appreciated and and, and having the space to explore and rather than, you know, or feeling more like their ideas that are being imposed on them. Um, so, so how does a supervisor navigate these things? And, and I would echo what Melissa said, like even these things doesn't like, we can, we can I think we would agree many of these uh, dynamics are culturally contextualized, right? These dynamics are, often are related to someone's beliefs and values. So yeah, and I so I think that's that's one of the concrete connection um that that we were able to make in in the manuscript, uh specifically attending to potential ruptures, potential uh misentomment in in that supervisory context.
1: And I, I think that's so important and so essential to that supervisory relationship because it is You know, and you've said this multiple times, it is part of that relationship to have ruptures and having those real authentic reactions is something that's not only a good thing, but it strengthens that relationship when you can move past them and lean into that discomfort and have those real here and now kind of conversations Um, So that leads me to this next quote here, and this is on page 85. So culturally humble individuals place the greatest emphasis on the mutual relational space within cultural encounters by prioritizing relationships and promoting mutual learning. I think that really speaks to what we're talking about here. And, and Pei Tao, that speaks to that cyclical uh, process that you were just describing and i'm wondering if if you and melissa could go into that a little bit more what's that cyclical process look like in the context of that relational learning
3: well one one thing for me that comes to mind is as a supervisor or counselor educator i um, part of what we do in pedagogy is we scaffold the the learning and the learning opportunities for, for our students and supervisees. And if we bring this back to this encounter that you're talking about, part of what it means to be a culturally humble supervisor is to have some flexibility through which the lens or the view or the frame in which I am understanding. And so to be able to take the other perspective, right? The other cultural being with whom I'm in relationship. And, and so um, much like, you know, holding two things, um, you know, as as potentially equally valid, that's part of that learning experience. And I think, it's practiced right there's you know Tao will talk i'm sure in a moment about dispositional and situational aspects um um because yeah it's that's complex too but 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 i i do believe that our participants talked about um uh, uh some evidence of being able to build these things and grow these things and develop um, um these skills and we also heard participants talk about how um relationships as they grew deepened, strengthened, that there was more um, really that that grace that you were talking about, Gideon, before, um, uh, the the space grew. So the relationship grew and the the parameters there grew.
2: Yeah, I as you were talking, Melissa, I think I'm thinking of one perhaps a little more concrete examples that I can perhaps talk through and maybe illustrate how, how cultural community might be, might be manifesting in in those moments. You know, like, I remember, um, one of the things that I struggle, um, being, you know, uh, being brought up not in the U.S. context, right? And uh, one of the things I struggle is, you know, when we were talking in the uh, clinical training and people talk about it's important for counselors to be transparent, to utilize your own reaction, talk about this is how I'm feeling toward what you're saying, right? Like all of these things seems pretty natural to, to, People maybe grew up in in the U.S. Um, because it can be conceptualized as um, being transparent, being authentic, being you know therapeutic. But at the same time, as someone who grew up in a cultural context where expressing your emotion emotions sometimes can be construed as putting a burden on other people, right? So it's not only, or it's not um, only this cognitive a process of what's being therapeutic or what's the helpful thing right now. But there's an added layer of like, do I want to do what is it appropriate for me to disclose things? Is that appropriate for me to talk about me? Um, is that, is it ethical for me to put this on the client, put this on the supervisor? So, so. You know, if if a supervisor were to approach this conversation with, for example, a counselor who may be operating from similar beliefs, they might very well feel like, okay, this seems to be a a, a tech or a, a, a intervention issue, or maybe this is a conceptualization issue. There seems to be an inability for someone to be transparent, to be self-disclosure, right? But I I, I would I would hope that a culturally humble supervisor. Would be able to explore some of the deeper layer of what contributes to what might be some of the cultural upbringing that contributes to that hesitancy, and if they were able to have that conversation, I see that as a mutually beneficial thing. First of all, help the supervisee to be able to explore some of the internal barriers, right? But at the same time, I think it broadens the supervisor's um, uh, understand cultural understanding too. Of okay, maybe you know this is not something. That uh, it's a behavioral, where it's a, a, a cognitive issue. maybe there there are other layers that I haven't thought about before. So in a sense, it's broadening for for both. Uh, parties that were involved in that in that interaction. Um, so, 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 yeah, and that's that's what we really want to emphasize is that this is a mutual thing. Um and interesting enough, a lot of times in the at least in the current literature, we often see uh, cultural humility is important for the supervisor or it's important for the counselor. But I think Melissa would agree with me in terms of, you know, it's also important for the client and it's also important for the supervisee. It doesn't belong to an exclusive group of people who need uh, um, uh, humility. I think everybody needs a little bit of that.
3: I think the example you just gave, Pei Tao, is a great uh, illustration of not only how it broadens, uh, and, and I certainly agree with you um, that it does, and that it's incomplete without it. Right. And so so from the supervisees, um, self-understanding and ability to grow, it would be incomplete without cultural humility present in that. And 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 you certainly illustrated the supervisor's point of entry for for intervention um, uh, would be would be incomplete and missing something.
0: I think I think the piece that. I'm, I'm hearing stand out to me in in this conversation is something that I've read in some of the literature around like multicultural relational perspective, so like Ken Hardy and, and and some of his work. But like at the heart of that work is really striving to push supervisees to think relationally and think contextually, and not just thinking relationally and thinking contextually, but also attending to what Feelings-wise, right? Like feeling relationally, feeling contextually, and really entering into the client's world to understand, perhaps, or, or get some greater context around what's, what are the cultural stories around different emotions? What emotions are safe to share? Not safe to share? How do those present in a helping relationship? So, I I, I appreciate the sort of richness in some of the sort of push that you both are offering here to to think less rigidly around what is culture, but also adopt a more expansive, multidimensional way of thinking about how cultural humility may show up. So, you know, that that being said, I want to throw out a throw out a question here for you. Um, and this I think, I think doubles back to something that Melissa, you offered up, but one of the pieces I picked up in reading your work was that there's a there's a good distinction that y'all made between being other oriented, which seems like a more traditional way of thinking about humility like I'm an other oriented person versus relational oriented and and it feels like in our conversation so far we've been really hitting home this idea of being relationally focused relationally oriented um so I guess I want to I want to kind of look behind the curtain how how did y'all talk about that as a as a research team or what did you see within your participants come up around Framing that that particular orientation to be other-oriented or relational-oriented.
2: Yeah, I I have many thoughts about this, and I'm sure Melissa has has a lot of um, a, a, a unique perspectives as well. For me, this really ties into like a, a, again this definitional challenge with humility and the and the way that is defining the literature versus the way that we typically use it in in like a social casual conversation. Uh, I think. Maybe there's there is this notion about humility being oh I'm somehow less than or not as good or not as competent um, so I, I need to lower my position in order to be uh, to be humble right and I understand because there is this perhaps a, a, a aspect of humility is to be you know, you don't want to steal a lot of attention. You don't want to, um, overshadow anybody. Right. So that there is this part of withholding a a bit. Um, but I don't think that's the complete picture of what humility is. Um, and we made it I think we were able to make a um, difference in our manuscript in terms of this idea of not knowing versus tentative knowing. Right. I think a lot of time, you know, a lot of the postmodern sort of theory talks about operating from a not knowing or non expert sort of stance, which I think has a lot of validity to it. But at the same time, I don't think not knowing means that you absolutely don't know anything. It means that, you know, things and you try every fiber of your being to learn as much as you can. And at the same time, you don't assume any of those things are true across contexts. So for humility, um, it's it sort of connected in humility way, in it's, I think it's this flexibility of shifting perspectives during an interaction. Like I always come into an interaction with my own positionality and perspectives and livid experience. And I'm not discounting any of that, but do I have the ability to temporarily suspend what I believe is true and, and and to see whether there's validity from a different perspective, even though I might not agree with them. So, and in doing that, I think it's a balanced self-other sort of bouncing back and forth kind of dynamics rather than, oh, it's not about me. It's completely about you. So let's talk about you instead. Because to me, um, you know, it's inauthentic not to bring yourself into a relationship and to pretend that you're... Uh, you know, your opinions or pers- perspective that don't matter, even though it might be, um, uh, you know, sometimes we say like in the counseling uh, or supervision, it's about the client or it's about the supervisee. Well, I I, I see the validity of that, but I I think that's-, that's one of the tension that we struggled as we were uh, interpreting some of the findings according to the participants. And we Arrived on this idea of a relational um, stance. Um, I don't. I don't know, Melissa, if you have uh, additional thoughts in regarding to that.
3: Yeah, I have two kind of disparate thoughts. But my first thought centers around I can't separate who I am and what I think from you know my theoretical perspectives and i'm thinking about the feminist literature and and the notion of subjugation of self versus you know bringing your your whole self and and that informs you know how i would answer your original question that i can't i can't, if i'm solely other focused that actually interferes with relationship um right because because i i i can't subjugate myself and um and and be be connected in in that sort of way. I also, um I want to make a point, uh, and it may be a little bit of a leap here, but but this particular study, um, our sampling, and the data that that arose, was both individuals' self-report around their own experiences and talking about some, in some instances, about themselves and their own cultural humility or lack of, and, and also um, participants talking about others and the observation of cultural humility or lack thereof in other people. And as a as a broad literature, Peitao certainly the expert i'm i'm more of a a tag along but um but but i think that that's something really unique that this you know along with a a grounded theory and 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 talking about process but the the data it itself is more than simply um self-report and and that's part of i think that begins to answer some of some of your inherent question about um You know the the relationship or other other orientedness.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's so. I I think I think you're onto it, right? That like there's this there's this neat work that I see y'all doing and and taking the lead here around not calling that say other orientedness, but really calling that relational orientedness and looking looking at within this relationship that I'm experiencing, be it a clinical relationship or supervision relationship. How do I how do I hold myself dutifully to that relationship, and not necessarily to the other? Because at some point, hopefully, the person becomes not the other; they become more familiar, right? So I wanna I wanna I wanna do two things here, right? I wanna I wanna commend y'all for for this particular piece because I think by way of contribution to the field, right? You don't just give us a really rich description of cultural humility based on your based on the data y'all collected. but You also begin to like offer up some hypotheses of like latent factors that could be contributing here and how we could implement this going forward. Um, And as as you all mentioned too, in, in a really complex way, there's both situational and dispositional aspects that as supervisors, as educators, we could also begin to design or foster within our supervisees you know, as, as we, as we kind of look to kind of close on our time, I want to, I just want to ask y'all what, what recommendations would you have for for supervisors who are invested in cultural humility? What are some strategies that they may use to enact or develop cultural humility within, within their supervisees or even within their own supervision practice?
2: This thought is more, is inspired by many of the participants in their description of their, um, uh, uh perspectives around cultural humility and emerging consensus, maybe not all, but most participants were, um, it's not something that you preach. Um, You can't tell someone to become culturally humble um, or it's not something that, well, for example, like you can maybe teach a class on the theories and the process of cultural humility, but I don't I think to be really be able to to foster that it has to show or it has to be modeled. Um, and it's something that needs to be embodied rather than um, or maybe it's both maybe both can com- to contribute to this but 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 I lean more towards you know as a as a, a supervisor, how can I, embody that cultural humility in, you know, some of the characteristics and qualities, dispositional, situational qualities um, that we discuss in the manuscript and be able to model that maybe uh, implicitly, and then perhaps uh, uh, with, with also explicit uh, being transparent about this is what, this is why I, we were having this conversation. This is why I thought this is important. Um, so, so really being able to in a way, um, flatten perhaps some of those, um, power dynamics within the supervisory relationship. Uh, and and yeah. and, And I think, uh, being able to model and being able to be transparent about your rational intentionality behind that, to me, it can be a very powerful way of instilling and fostering cultural humility.
3: I have three really concrete things that um, are interrelated. So one is a instructor or supervisor. I can review segments of my own work um, recordings um, and and do some self assessment um, reflectivity of where I I was more and where I was less. And so I really. I, I like to think about this as a fluid, fluidity, and, um, um, and I know right from the literature that it's it's there's a movement. So what was going on and where, where I exhibited more or less cultural humility. There's certainly, um, I hope we have a moment to talk about some instruments um, related to cultural humility. There's certainly instruments that are available that not only can be used in research, but supervisors can use with their supervisees. So um, giving a relatively short instrument to um, uh, the supervisee and asking the supervisee to review and use to do a self-assessment on their cultural humility in in their counseling work. Similarly, we can think about this as Um, Client to client, what's going on over time, look at things developmentally, Um, potentially even I personally think that there's theoretical frameworks that are more or less open to, to how cultural humility um, might might be enacted, um, that, that would be an interesting thing to do with your supervisee as well. But, but also, we know how important feedback is, right? So we can go to our clients, we can go to our supervisees as supervisors, and solicit feedback about our cultural humility and use formalized measures or or more um, informal, um, you know, subjective, you know, let's talk about about what went on. But that's important.
1: Yeah, just a follow up on that too. I I think that this work is so meaningful and so important and these are the beginning stages of it. So thinking of that and thinking in terms of the future, I, I love Melissa. What you just talked about with formalized instruments and stuff like that. What are some of your future directions with this with this work?
2: So yeah, Melissa, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned that, Melissa, and also Gina. Your question as well. Uh, Melissa and I are in a team. Uh, in a team, like right now, we're in the stage of continuing to develop a, uh, a measure um, from right now we're looking at client's perspective. So client measuring counselor um, in terms of our cultural humility. And one cool thing that we're able to actually incorporate from this grounded theory study was um, we incor- incorporate both the dispositional and the situational aspect, right? We asked them, so in general, what are how how would you rate these, the qualities? And we asked them to think about, so, uh, Recall if there was ever a moment where you felt there was some kind of tension between you and your supervisee, uh, you and your uh, your counselor, or if it hasn't happened, how do you think your counselor would uh, react or interact with you in that moment? Right, and then we have a some a set of specific behaviors uh, again informed partially by by the study that we've been talking about. So I I, and I think like our goal is to continue to refine and be able to uh, make it not only you know, psychometrically and conceptually sound, but at the same time, practically Friendly as well, right? So nobody wants to use a fifty-item <laughs> instrument in in practice. So we're trying to kind of uh, to to see what we can do to to serve uh, to serve multiple purposes. And I think it's definitely a, a future direction if we want to develop multiple perspectives, right? Not only the the client, maybe the supervisor can rate the supervisee, or vice versa. Um, so these are some of the things that we've been thinking about.
1: I think
3: that intuitively um from from my experiences both as a supervisor as well as a counselor that there may be critical periods where in cultural humility has more situational um relevance or salience right um so peel you gave that example at a conference like like one might think that the beginning of of forming a working alliance there might be there might be a a, a a critical period or, or more loading, but there, you know, we also know from participants that points of conflict or tension seem particularly relevant, but there may be other, other instances across the development of a therapeutic or a supervisory relationship where, um, where there's particular uh, there's a particular importance or bearing. And, and those seem to me to be important questions to to answer to for for us to to pay attention to as we're in the business of um uh, relational business of helping people grow.
0: So I, I want to ask you, ask you both here as we look to close on our time together, because you know in truth we could talk about culture humility um for for a whole afternoon. Um and I think the direction that y'all are going is 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 gonna make cultural humility more accessible for educators and supervisors to be able to build this into their work. Um, So uh, I think to to both of your credit and your team's credit, you're making such a critical concept, less abstract and much more concrete um, because it really does impact effective clinical work. Um, But so we always close supervision time here with two questions. One of which you've already answered, like what are some tips you would offer up to supervisors who really wanna engage in in, um, supervision work that that is based in culture humility? Um, but I wanna I wanna take the privilege of asking you this last question. Um, what what books are y'all reading? Um, I, ideally non non work related books. Um, but what are you reading right now?
2: Gideon, I'm not familiar with the concept of non work related books. Can you explain that a little bit? <laughs> uh, I've been th- I've been thinking uh, hard about this. And again, I know this is a question that you're gonna. I don't really know. I don't think I'm reading. I'm doing any reading per se. But I do have hobbies, um, such as music and stuff. I I do. I spend a lot of time on piano, singing stuff. So that's kind of how I balance uh, things that are not specifically academic related. Uh, I know it's not directly answer your question, but that's the best that I can give you right now.
3: I, I love Pei Tao's uh, question back to you. Um, um, I might ask a similar question, but for a different. Uh, everything is connected for me. So so like, that's how, how I think. But um, I'm reading actually two books right now. I'm reading a book called Milk by um, Mark Kurlansky. Um, he's one of my favorite authors. Um, uh, and uh, he tends to write historically um, and certainly in a way um, uh, cross-culturally, he wrote salt, for example, you may be familiar with it, but it's a world history through salt. Anyway, milk is um, uh, something that I am reading and I'm also rereading The Body Keeps the Score by um, Bessel van der Kolk. Um, I uh, have uh, some colleagues who are outside of counseling, but came upon that book um, and, we, we decided that we were going to reread that in light of some of the um, equity, diversity, inclusion work that we were doing at our, our institution and thinking about um, racial trauma.
1: That is one of my favorite books of all time, Melissa. Such a good one. Definitely not non-work related, but still a very, very good book. <laughs> yeah. So that's about all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening and subscribing to our podcast. Thank you so much to our guests who have shared so much with us today about the very important and meaningful work that they've been doing and some of the directions that they're hoping to go in. I am just so touched by the fact that we've been able to have this in-depth and very rich conversation around this topic today. So Dr. Zhu and Dr. Luke, we really appreciate your time and your wisdom on this topic uh, and sharing that with us today. So listeners, if you have any suggestions or want to send some love our way, you can reach us at Gina, G-I-N-A dash Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N at uiowa.edu. That's my email and we are looking for any and all feedback, any words that you want to send to us, we wanna hear them. So, Supervision Time is part of the Pod Talk Network. The Pod Talk Network currently hosts shows such as The Tech Savvy Professor, The Faculty Meeting, and Grad School Deconstructed. We're also introducing a new show called The Counseling Delphi, which is coming later this month. You can find out more about us and a number of our counseling related podcasts at thepodtalk.net. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing. That's all for Supervision Time.